the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The value of women throughout religious history. And later, we're joined by Sharla Fritz, author of Measured, How God Defines Success. You're listening to The Common Grid. Friday afternoon. My name is Aubrey Sampson, and my regular co-host Brian Fromm is on vacation. He'll be gone today and a few days next week. And so I have the pleasure and the joy of being joined, teamed up with my partner in crime, Miss Catherine McNeil. Catherine, thanks for being here with us today. I feel like our listeners, like, they know you by now, but... Oh, yeah. Don't you think so? You're like old, old school by now. But maybe for the odd listener who, for some crazy reason missed when you were on in the past. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Well, for sure, you're going to know who I am by next week because we're pretty much taking things over here, Aubrey. It is a Catherine and Aubrey takeover on the common good. It is. All right. Well, let's see. I'm neighbors with Aubrey Sampson. Yes. We live just down the street from each other. Our kids go to school together and we kind of got to know each other carpooling, I think, way back in the day, way back in preschool. Mm -hmm. But when I'm not driving Aubrey's kids to school. I am a writer and an author and an editor and occasionally a fill-in co-host at are you, The Common Good. Are you allowed yet to talk about this major project you're editing that is really exciting or is it still kind of under wraps? No, I am not. Okay, Definitely so that's not. a tease, listeners. At some point, Wait. we might unveil this thing. Well, I guess I'm editing a bunch of things. We'll talk about this next week. How okay, about that? That sounds great. That sounds great. That sounds great. Okay, so Catherine, speaking of writing, you actually sent me. I know this is gonna like listeners hear me out here. Catherine sent me a paper she wrote for her seminary work that she's doing right now. Yes, and, and um, I know some of you are already like, I don't want to hear about a seminary paper, but I promise you, you do, because what she's tracing is the attitude that uh, religious history has had towards women, specifically women's bodies. Yeah. And I know this is going to sound really heady, but I, I think it's interesting and worth talking about to our listeners about because I think it still really impacts women in the church today. So I'm just going to keep this kind of open-ended, Catherine. Can you tell us a little bit about your paper? And then we'll have a discussion about the topic. Sure. Well, the title of the paper, I called it Red Robes and Hysteria, How Views of Pregnancy, Childbirth, and Women... Uh, well, I don't even remember. Forget that. <laughs> you, that that's enough. That Sorry about good. that. No, it's okay. Can we uh, cut that out? Um, <clears throat> yeah. So in this paper, I'm taking a look at views and beliefs about women's bodies that far precede any kind of scientific data about human bodies and how that impacted the view of women's intellectual capabilities, spiritual capabilities, and even more so impacted um, the view of 
what God looks like mm. um, and what somebody who would speak for God or represent God looks mm. like. And it's been really, really fascinating. Um, I've looked back at kind of the Greek and Romans mm -hmm. who believed that because women's bodies leaked fluids um, every month and during birth and while they were breastfeeding, mm -hmm. that that must mean that they were inherently unstable. Like they couldn't keep it together. You know, like if you had a, a water bottle mm -hmm. that was leaking, sure. you would say, I need this. Something's wrong with this. This is broken. Yeah. Um, it's lacking in integrity. Yeah. So it wasn't just their bodies because this was back when people were categorized by humors and elements. Mm -hmm. Clearly women's spirits and souls also were just lacking in integrity and structure. Sure. And therefore... They um, they just could not be relied upon for anything simply because they had these sort of biological functions of reproduction. Um, and therefore, they considered that the ideal human body was the male body. Mm. And, of course, who is God going to be most like? Yeah. The ideal human right. or the subpar broken human? Right. So therefore, God must be like a male hmm. body. Yeah. And um, yeah, it's been fascinating because we would never think something like that now. We understand the science behind right, right. Um, all of right. this. But... We still have so many of these assumptions underlying mm -hmm. our beliefs about men and women. I think maybe especially in the church. So yeah, I, I, yeah. I think that's I think that's where I want to kind of take this conversation, Catherine. Is that so much of what you're talking about, though maybe with different language, um, is still very prevalent in 2022, like. After the scientific data, after we sort of quote unquote know better, yes, um, certainly the world is charged with a lot of feelings about like women being. I mean, there's all you know, weaker, unreliable, unstable, emo mm -hmm. too emotional, mm -hmm. yes, um, yes, to to lead or to preach or to make big important decisions because because of her hormones. I mean, I can remember very specifically preaching one of my first sermons years ago, Catherine, I think you and Matthew were actually there. Um, we were. And this was, I, you know, I had led a youth ministry for years, but this was the first time preaching in front of like male and female adults at our church. Our, my lovely pastor at the time um, invited me to do that. And I remember afterward, um, a male that was on staff with me asking if I was on my period because there was a moment in my message when I got emotional, meaning I teared up a little bit because I, I can't remember. Wow. I honestly don't remember what I was talking about, but there was something, uh, you know, that brought me emotion and therefore his assumption was, Oh, I must be on my period. And his second was a thing was if you're going to keep doing that, you have to get control of your emotions. And I remember for a very, very, very long time after that, I mean, decades after that, Catherine, thinking, mm -hmm. I do have to get control of my emotions. I can't be, quote unquote, that woman oh. on stage. And at some point, I, I can't remember when it was. I was actually I do remember. I was about to preach at Mission Church. 
And I remember that day feeling emotional about the topic because I think they'd asked me to come talk about suffering and I had just been through some loss in my life. It was probably a lament. Hmm. And, and I remember praying, God, don't let me get too emotional. God, don't let me get too emotional. God, don't let me get too emotional. I don't want to be that woman preaching. Oh, And I felt like the Holy Spirit said, Aubrey, what if your emotions are part of the gift that you're bringing to the table here. Yes, and absolutely. And I got on stage. I brought a box of Kleenex. I sat it down in front of me and I said, you guys, we're going to talk about some hard stuff today. And I'm not going to apologize for being emotional about it. So I'm bringing my Kleenex on stage. And I have had so many people comment how that gave that them kind of permission and freedom and grace. And, Good. and But it is wild. I mean, I'm, I'm taking a long time to say it is wild the way women get boxed in and pinned yes. Uh, to not be yes. who they are yes. because of their emotions or their bodies or their hormones or whatever it is. But no one's ever saying that to men. Yes. You know, I one of the research sources that I used for looking at how these ideas are still continuing on today was um, a master's thesis that was written by a colleague of mine. And she found women um, reporting, women who are ordained ministers, so they're already in a rather more accepting Mm -hmm. location, Mm -hmm. who are being told not to preach on weeks that they had their periods because somehow people would know and would think of the blood of a woman rather than the blood of Christ, <laughs> which is, which is weird. <laughs> Super weird. But so ma- that, that was not an uncommon mm. kind of exhortation mm. for these women who are pastors, yeah. but also many women reported being told by men and women, uh, both superiors and congregants that they should not preach while they were pregnant because it proved that she was a sexual person. <laughs> and, that <laughs> and god forbid a woman be a sexual yes. person no it would make yes i remember this in your research right? it would make people think about sex more or about the woman being sexual more than it would about yeah and i think that just goes to show how broken we are yeah. in this conversation yeah. to the core yeah. you know god made humans male and female god made monthly periods and god made pregnancy Mm -hmm. and god made Mm -hmm. all of this and said it was good and it's that's kind of what the incarnation is right is that god actually took on flesh and blood and it means all of this So, yeah. So good, Catherine. Well, I know there's a lot more to unpack in that conversation, but I, I think what I want our listeners to hear is is maybe just now a l- little bit more of an awareness. Like when you hear some of these attitudes being spouted about women's bodies, women's worth, women's value, women being too emotional, et cetera, unreliable, whatever it is, uh, just maybe kind of go ding in your mind. Oh, wait, that's actually not an accurate viewpoint that's really really ancient from the greek greeks and is that biblical no and maybe you can begin to combat it in your mind anyway yes. lots Ooh. that we can keep talking about but very very interesting so much. stuff we are so thrilled because Catherine and i are joined today by a sister author a friend of ours she's part of a writer's guild that we're all a part of we've known each other for years her name is charla fritz She's the author of many books, but she has a brand new book out called Measured by Grace, How God Defines Success. And uh, Sharla, we are so thrilled to have you on The Common Good today. Thanks so much for being here with us. Thank you, Aubrey. It's wonderful to be here. I, I always enjoy your show and the insights that you bring. 
Well, thanks for saying that. Mm-hmm. So nice, Sharla. Um, Sharla, for our listeners who may not be familiar with you or your work yet, they will be after this, but can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm an author and speaker, and I write primarily Bible studies for women who want to dig into the Bible and learn more about God's grace for their lives. I try to make the Bible studies really practical and fun, but still diving deep into God's word. Hmm. Fantastic. You do such a good job of that mm-hmm. too, Sharla. I know the name of your book is Measured by Grace, How God Defines Success. And I know that you've just spent thousands of words answering this question, but could you just really briefly summarize how would you say God defines success? Well, I think uh, in the book, in Measured by Grace, I study eight different people, biblical characters, who either had a huge mistake or they, you know, they just didn't look much like a success in the eyes of the world. Hmm. It made me wonder why God included those stories in the Bible. And it made me see hmm. as I dived into those stories that they, they uh, show us that God doesn't necessarily define success by wealth or fame or big accomplishments. It's more like hmm. he define success in our faithfulness to him, relying on him and doing whatever job he has given us, whether we think it's big or small, when we do that Mm. job for him and in his power, I think all of the stories Mm. throughout the book emphasize that fact. We might think what we're doing is not important, but in God's eyes, everything that he has given us becomes significant in his hands. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. So beautiful, Sharla. Um, Can you tell us maybe a favorite character or a surprising character as you were studying and writing that, that you personally connected with? Well, Joseph is the one who really inspired the idea for the book. Because when I was reading the story of Joseph, I noticed a phrase that said, and everything Joseph did turned to success. And mm-hmm. you would think, okay, Joseph in the Old Testament, this, this is the Old Testament Joseph, he became the second most important person in Egypt. And so you would think that phrase yeah. that about all of his work turning to success happened when he was that powerful person in the nation and saved the nation from starvation. But it doesn't Mm. use the phrase there. It uses that phrase when Joseph is a slave in Potiphar's household and when Mm. he is a prisoner. And that is what first made me think, okay, God defines success much differently than we do. He he noticed Joseph's work when it was in obscurity, when he was just Mm. doing his best as a slave, when he Mm. was working in the prison, God noticed that and said it was a success. So I just, Mm. um, that really touched me and made me think I want to learn more about success. Yeah. Yeah. So good. 
Sharla, there's a phrase that you wrote in the book that really stood out to me. And as I was kind of flipping through, I went back and looked for it again. And it's rest in the truth that you don't need to do something great for God. I think that stood out Mm. to me because that has the ring of truth to it, to me as someone who studies the Bible, but it is in contrast to so much of the messaging that we hear in our culture, Um, you know, from youth group rallies to uh, Christian college. There's <laughs> such a large uh, messaging, I think, especially on young people that you need to do something great for God. Can you tell me a little bit more about why you put that statement in here and what you'd like to tell the reader through that? Well, I think David's story shows this really well because he wanted to build a temple for the Lord. He wanted to do something great for the Lord. But then uh, Nathan, the prophet, comes to him and says, God said, no, you don't need to do this. Instead, I'm going to make Mm. your name great. And Mm. that was uh, like an eye-opening thing. God doesn't doesn't need us to do great things for him. Mm. He is the one that does the great things. And uh, like you said, in our culture, that is just drummed into us that we have to do Mm -hmm. something big and important and great. And so I, I have felt that myself. I've felt that burden. I want my life to matter. But through all of the stories in Measured by Grace, you will see that God often chose the small and the unimportant and the least Mm -hmm. likely And they did something for him, but it wasn't necessarily big and impressive all the time. Uh, Jeremiah Mm -hmm. is another example of this because Jeremiah, he, God said, I want you to be my spokesperson. I am going to put my words in your mouth. And, you know, Jeremiah probably thought, well, this is a slam dunk success because I'm going to be speaking God's (laughs) words. Everybody's going to want to flock to hear my words. But the message that God gave him was not something that the people wanted to hear. And so then he, Mm -hmm. nobody listened to him. So in his Mm -hmm. lifetime, he probably felt very much like a failure, but thousands of years later, here we are still reading his words and they're still touching our lives. And so it might seem like a small thing in our lifetime. We don't know how God is going to use it. So I think we have to, instead of thinking of doing something big and important for God, we just do what he has given to us in that moment and view it as something that God has given us in love to do for him. And if we do that in love, he will make something great out of it, whether we see the greatness or not. Mm. Oh, so good, Charla. Charla, um, with the brief time that we have left, I, I'm just thinking of our listeners who might feel like failures in their own life right now for whatever reason, life circumstance, a mistake, what have you. What's a word of encouragement that you have for them? I would encourage everyone to remember that God doesn't base his love for us on our accomplishments or our successes. He won't love mm-hmm. us more if we have if we have done something. Oh, we haven't done something important 
or he won't love us more if we have done something impressive. He will mm. always love us just because he is love. Oh, it's so good, Charlotte. This is a message all of us need. I feel like every day, those of us who have been Christians for a long time or brand new Christians or don't even know Jesus, it's such a good word that we can't earn or like out outdo his love for us. I love that. Charlotte, mm-hmm. where can our listeners find you and uh, find your book? Well, my website is Sharla Fritz and uh, spelled S-H-A-R-L-A-F-R-I-T-Z charlafritz.com. And the book is available on Amazon, Measured by Grace, How God Defines Success. Charla, thanks so much for being here with us today. We've loved having you. Thank you, Charla. And we love connecting with you on social media. We are at Common Good Talk on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Catherine, where can people find you on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook? Well, my handle is my first and last name almost everywhere. Catherine McNeil. You just have to spell it right. It's Catherine with a C. And McNeil is an I-E-L, which is really unusual. But my website, Facebook, Twitter, pretty much everything. Instagram, LinkedIn. Perfect. Catherine McNeil. Um, And I am at Samp at all of those places as well. Um, Okay. So, Catherine. Uh, Yes, Aubrey. I want to have a conversation about emotions. Oh. And this notion, something that I've just been learning about called spiritual bypassing. Have you heard this phrase uh, before? I have. Yes, okay. actually. So how can how would you define spiritual bypassing to the average person? Well, I think Maybe the word spiritualizing could also be used Mm. there, um, where if I break my leg and you ask me, how are you doing? I'm maybe the honest answer is I'm in so much pain and I'm also extremely disappointed because I was supposed to go hiking with my family next week. And also this is incredibly expensive and I'm feeling so anxious about how to pay for it. But instead of being honest about my practical realities and my emotional experience, I give you what sounds like the right Mm. answer from a spiritual perspective. Mm. I say, you know, I'm just feeling so blessed today. (laughs) Um, (laughs) God has just done so many things already through this process. And the thing is, is that those are good things if they're genuine, you know, um, my husband's grandmother lived through the depression, lived through the world wars, all that. And she would genuinely look you in the eye and just talk about how joyful and blessed Mm. she was feeling. Um, even though she'd suffered Mm. tragedy after tragedy throughout her life, but she had actually over time, come to this place where God was holding her like a rock. Wow. Um, And I think we hear that and we think, okay, when I'm going through tragedy and stress, I have to convince everybody that I'm just feeling so blessed, you know, too blessed to be (laughs) spread, too blessed to be stressed. Right, right. But unless that's true, then it's spiritual bypassing. Yeah, that's, that's a great definition, Catherine. I have, I have a friend, (laughs) she's, she's very Pentecostal 
but she's very aware of being Pentecostal. Like, mm-hmm. so, uh, so let's say she has, let's say she's got strep throat, for example. I'll call her up. Okay. How are you feeling? Are you feeling okay? Or send a text. How are you feeling? How are you feeling okay? And she goes, she'll literally say, well, I'm Pentecostal, so I'm being healed. And, uh-huh. and she laughs about it, but she does it. Uh-huh. It's interesting because she does not ever allow herself to be like, you know, my throat really hurts today. Like she would yeah, not utter miserable. Like it, you just would not hear it. And I don't know that she's necessarily spiritual bypassing. She might be, but it is certainly hmm. a mindset of like, nope, I am not going to say this thing that's really, really painful and hard. I'm not going to complain about it. I'm going to, and I, I love this woman. So apart from her, I want to like yes. separate this conversation from her. Sometimes when I get in conversations with people like that, I just kind of cringe and I back away relationally because I'm like, yeah. oh, this is how we're going to do it. You aren't going to yeah. be real with me and offer me your true self. Therefore, I'm not going to trust my true self with you. That's fine. We'll keep it at that level. Yeah, yeah. But it tends to turn me off a little bit. Do you feel that way? I agree. Or, yeah. I do. It feels like a wall, like a protective mm-hmm. wall saying, um, for whatever reason, because I don't like yeah. you or because yeah. I am afraid, I'm going to keep you from knowing who I mm-hmm. really am. But that also comes with the flip side, which is this is not a safe place for you to show who yeah, you really are. Yeah, yeah. But you know, I authenticity is so key here because I am so encouraged by the people who genuinely have worked through I know, suffering so am I. and found God's presence yes. to be tangible. Yes. And I don't personally feel encouraged by people who are complaining all the time. I find myself constantly hungry for voices in my life to say, Catherine, like, look at the light, like lift up your face, see that God is present. And so I think it really comes down to, are you willing to be genuine, both about the suffering and about God's presence? Because we can't even genuinely talk about God's faithfulness if we're insisting that nothing is wrong. Yeah, I, does that make sense? Oh, I mean, I wrote a whole book about that. That's it, you it, did. It, in fact, I, I actually did too. I'm, I'm gonna. Oh yeah, you really did, didn't you? Somebody, <laughs> yes. somebody actually made a meme of a quote from the Louder song, and you just brought it to mind. So I'm gonna read it. I know I don't ever read quotes okay. by myself on yeah. the air, just so you know. But I am gonna do this. No, go for but it. But I was like, oh, this is what Catherine's saying. So this is from my book, The Louder Song. If we never acknowledge our pain to God, we will never truly know what it means to praise him on the other side of suffering. It is in our honest crying out to God about our pain that our worship of God grows more authentic. Wow. And I think the same thing can be true, like you're saying, relationally. Like, we don't have to do it with everybody, but those trusted people in our lives that we can be authentic about, here's the pain we're in, that yes, that does go a long way. But I think you're right, Catherine. Like, I also long for people who have, like, like they fought the fight, right? Like it's a, for them, their faith is a fighter's prize because they've done the hard work of like suffering, but clinging to Jesus and finding God's presence in the middle of that. And like, I do want to hear encouragement from that person. I, I, in fact, like you were saying, like my soul is hungry for that because I need that. Like we need to borrow each other's faith in seasons of difficulty. Um, But I guess you're right. It, it's the, the authenticity, which makes it either glib or glory, I guess. Yes. Yeah, that's good. You know, I think about, I think it was Martha who kind of met Jesus on the pathway mm. um, after Lazarus, mm-hmm. her brother died. And she wasn't like, oh, hey, Jesus, <laughs> it's all good here. Um, went, not only was she what? devastated, yeah. she was mad. Yeah. And she said, and 
later in the story, she acknowledges that he's God. Mm-hmm. And still she like comes at him. Like, don't you see her like running down the road in a rage? Totally. Like, where were you? Yes. And um, the thing is, is that Martha is the person who could later come and sit with me in my own grief and say, yeah, say, this is horrible and hard. Put your eyes on Jesus, you know, because she and I both know that she has gone all the way to the bottom of grief and been honest Mm -hmm. and found God Mm -hmm. to be there. Yep. So, such a good word for all of us. Well, Catherine, over at Relevant Magazine, they're talking about this concept of bypassing your emotions. And um, this author, uh, her name is Allison Cook. She talks about her from most of her young adult life. um, She would tell herself things like, I'm not lonely. I have Jesus. I don't need therapy. I pray. What shame. My identity is in Christ. I'm not angry. I forgive. She says that somehow she thought that her relationship with Christ made her immune to normal human emotions and made her even wow. look down on them. And I think there's a lot of Christians that feel that way, especially like based on this whole conversation you and I have had. Yes, yes. Um, and ultimately what she what she talks about is um, emotional health kind of does something different. So if spiritual bypassing or like you said, over-spiritualization or you said spiritualizing – is uh-huh. is something like you don't need to be sad. God has given you so much. Emotional mm-hmm. health says, "Hey, a part of me feels sad today. I'm curious what that's about." Yeah. Uh, spiritual bypassing says, "Ask God to take your anger away. You shouldn't be angry." And emotional health says, "I feel so angry. I don't want to act out of anger, but I do want to understand where it's coming from." Hmm. Spiritual bypassing says, "God forgave you, so you should forgive others. Turn the other cheek." Emotional health says, "I want to forgive, but my heart is far from it. I'm going to talk to someone honestly about this struggle." Spiritual bypassing, starve your fear. It is the enemy of your faith. Emotional health is, "I'm fearful of what they might think of me. I want to understand that fear so that it doesn't rule me." So really, it just seems like it's a posture of honesty and asking God for help is kind of the key, rather than just like brushing your feelings aside. Yes. Yes. That's, you know, I have a master's degree in counseling, actually, that I don't ever use. But one of the images that would be brought up a lot in our lectures that really stuck with me is that if there's furniture that you don't like in your house, and of course, we're talking on a, met- a metaphor here, this is emotional. Yeah. Um, and you if you put it up in your attic, because you don't want to have to deal with it, eventually, it's going to start making noise up in your attic. <laughs> and it's going to be when you have a party over. Or, <laughs> right, you know, right. Um, you can't just stuff these things because you don't want to think about them. Mm. You actually have to deal with them. Mm. But God is here to help us yes. and God has given us each other. Yeah. But yeah, you have to deal with them. Yeah. Uh, such a good word for all of us. May God give us the grace to get better at this. Catherine, do you guys have any weekend plans? Uh, we do, actually. I almost hesitate to admit this on air, but I'm about to head out to the White Sox game. <gasps> oh, we were just talking about the White Sox earlier this week. Are you're a big Cubs fan, well, though. I, yes, that's why I hesitate to admit okay, it. Gotcha. I am a big Cubs yeah. fan. And moreover, I am a Minnesota Twins fan. Oh, man. So there's just no room in my life for the White Sox. Um, but tickets became available, and I am going. That's so fun. I lo- actually love, yeah. go- love going to baseball games. I think that's good. That, I do, too. Uh, you know who would actually be shocked to hear me say that? Brian Fromm. Because oh. he loves baseball especially the Mets, but he, um, 
he makes fun of me for not, you know, caring about sports. And I really don't care about sports at all. But I do really enjoy being at baseball games, like the, yeah, the camaraderie yeah. and the just like eating good food and it's fun. In the sun yeah, it's like and, a party. Yeah, it's like a party. I like hockey games for yeah. that reason. I feel like they're fun too. It's, oh, okay. Yeah. It's America's favorite pastime. I actually don't care about sports at all either. I, I will never have any idea what's going yeah. on. Like all my friends will be posting things and I'll be like, oh, I didn't even know it was basketball <laughs> mm-hmm. season, much less that it was the championship. Yeah, same, same. What's March Madness? Right. <laughs> um, but baseball, I do make an exception for baseball. I do love baseball. Yeah, that's so fun. I love that. Well, that's yeah. that sounds like a fun weekend. I hope you have a great, great night tonight at the game. Thank you. Um, okay, Catherine, switching gears here. Uh, Brian and I interviewed a good friend of mine and Kevin's, Daniel Yang. He co-authored a book with Matt Sorens, who you and I both know, and um, another pastor from Tulsa, Oklahoma. And really, it's about um, their belief that marginalized voices in America are actually Mm. going to help save the American church. And uh, it's a really, really good book uh, worth reading called Inalienable, How Marginalized Kingdom Voices Can Help Save the American Church. Um, so interestingly, I, Kevin and I went to their book launch and hmm. um, they brought, I think it was maybe six people, uh, some church pastors, some just church goers uh, from America, but from around the world. So like a couple women from Africa, a couple guys from Latin America, a guy from um, uh, Thailand, I think I might be wrong about that, but and basically okay. asked them, "Hey, um, tell us like it, it, I, I want to be careful saying this because it wasn't like critique the American church for us, but it was kind of like sure. tell us some things you notice, right? Like from your sure. perspective, yeah. Mm-hmm. And a couple things that stuck out to me is one was they all. They all were a little dismayed at America's the American church's lack of biblical knowledge. Wow, like that was mm-hmm. that was very very surprising to them. Um, Me too, actually. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I think that was that was pretty compelling and convicting. Like I was like, yeah, that's a very fair critique. And mm-hmm. then um, the other thing was this like kind of lack of community or what. I mean, jokingly, like what we would say, white people time, like we want to go from here to here Mm. to here to here to here. We want our church to end on time. We want that meeting to end on time. We don't want it to take longer than that. And they were sort of lamenting, like, how then is there space for interruption, holy interruption? How then is there space for real deep friendship and community? Like, how then is there space for the Holy Spirit to move? Like, so they were asking some really, really good questions and and sort of the point that um, these authors were demonstrating through having these other perspectives was like the global church that is now in America and some statistics came out that America is the most diverse it has ever been in its history right now. Wow. Um, that the global church that is now in America is actually going to be the thing that helps the American church be what it always should have been. And some of the problems that we're seeing now, like some of the downfall of pastors and the celebrity culture and, and what have you, I mean, you can categorize these things in all kinds of ways, that the global church that is now on uh, on American ground, ground, American soil, is going to show us 
like a perspective, a new way, a better way, the right way. Mm. And like a movement is going to come through the global church and help save the American church. What do you think? Okay. What are your thoughts about that? Oh, well, I, I hope so. Yeah, I feel a little bit uncomfortable uh, with the idea. I would be careful how I wanted to phrase it because I know I've heard all of my friends who are on the margins are tired of white people mm. saying, oh, we need you to fix mm. this thing for us. Like maybe you can do the work to fix this yeah. thing for us that we broke. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> so I'm not, I'm not wanting to say that. Yeah. But I do think that for a very, very, very long time, American churches have somehow sort of implicitly assumed that we understand best that what we're doing is the ideal and that we don't need to get critique or feedback from very different corners of the church mm. that we need to be sending missionaries to these other countries. We do not need to be receiving missionaries from mm. them. So I do think that there is a, a, a broken down feedback where we're sending feedback to other churches around the world, but we're not necessarily allowing them to speak into our own yeah. blind spots. Um, I can remember um, when I was uh, living in another country for a while, uh, a, a local American Christian who was who was living there was complaining that the church struggled so much with syncretism that they mm -hmm. had adopted so much of the local culture that it didn't feel like Christianity yeah. to her yeah, anymore. That makes sense. And I was I was like, you know, yeah, that is a problem. We do that too in America. And she was like, no, we don't. Um, she she saw American Christianity as the thing itself. Wow. Um, and any other iterations around the world as deviance. Mm. Um, so I think that's where we do need to be, quote unquote, saved yeah. by the global church. We need to be willing to humble ourselves mm. and listen and say, how have we actually just brought in way too much of American values, mm. American practices mm. at the expense of the body of Christ? What can you see in us that we can't see in ourselves? Yeah, that's that's so good. And sometimes it is just, I mean, like in every field, it's just healthy to have an outsider's yes. perspective because absolutely. Uh, and I hate to say outsider because that's sort of unfair, but the voices that we have typically marginalized, mm -hmm. um, it, it, you just, you get a fresh perspective because you have fresh eyes. Like sometimes when you're in it, you just can't see. And so it's so right. helpful just to have another voice be like, well, hey, have you considered it this way? Or or why does the American church not value the word of God or know the word of God as much as other parts of the world? Like those are right. worth, those are compelling critiques worth hearing and, and from our brothers and sisters in Christ, right? So there's like a genuine yes. love and affection towards Jesus and the unity that we have because of the blood of Christ. And that can be yes. so, so healthy. Um, you can find uh, more about this book. It's wherever books are sold. But again, Daniel Yang, Matt Sorens, and um, their third co-author, whose name I cannot remember right now, unfortunately. Eric Costanza is his name. It's called Inalienable, How Marginalized Kingdom Voices Can Help Save the American Church, available wherever books are sold. It's Friday. So uh, if you're a regular listener, you know what that means. That means it is time for our top five list. Top five, top five, top five, top five, top five things with Brian and Aubrey. Woo -woo. All right. You heard that theme song. That means it is time for our top five list. Um, Catherine, do you want to tell the people what our top five list is today? 
I do want to, because I'm so excited about this. I have butterflies in my stomach. <laughs> we are going to talk about our top five school supplies. Top five school supplies. And you might be saying, why are you doing top five school supplies? It is because it is almost it's time so for us wonderful. to go back to school. We are starting yeah. to like, get our school supply list from our schools and the Target aisles, the Walmart aisles are filled, filled. with school supplies. And so- Stocked. In honor of, I mean, I don't want to say summer ending, but in honor of summer ending in school, going back in, we are going to talk about top five school supplies. And some of these are like from when we were kids, not necessarily yeah. ones now, but um, all right, Catherine, why don't you start with number five? Okay. Well, do you just, I just want everyone to take a moment and remember that <laughs> delicious feeling of new school supplies. I don't know what is so amazing about it. Maybe it's because back when we were growing up, you didn't get new things that often. There had to be like an event. Yes, that's so but, true. So my number five is a little bit off the beaten path. But okay. do you remember those fun erasers that you oh, used to be able to yes. get? Oh, yes. Um, they would be in different shapes, shapes. and different colors. Yep. And I can smell them. Like I can viscerally mm -hmm. smell those erasers mm -hmm. right now. And they were so fun. Those were so fun. I Those yep. are going to be on my list as well a little bit okay. higher. I love those cute erasers. Yeah. Um. Okay. And you could like collect them and you'd like put them in a little Ziploc bag or something. They yes. were so cute. Yes. yes. Um. Okay. My number five is just a good old fashioned backpack. I love yeah. getting a new backpack, especially like a cute one or as I got older, like a cool one. Like I mm -hmm. just, I loved a new backpack because backpacks were a little expensive. You didn't always oh, get yeah. one year to year. Oh, no. But when you did, that was exciting. Yes. Very, very exciting. exciting. Absolutely. I, I feel like Catherine, it might've been you, correct me if I'm wrong, who taught me when our kids were a little younger, like sometimes it's worth buying a little bit more of an expensive backpack so you're not buying a new one oh, every year. And I yes. learned that from you. Thank you. Yes. And I'm not trying to do product placement or anything, but <laughs> I try to get backpacks at Costco because I feel like they just wear out otherwise. They do wear like out. It's 20 wild. minutes. Like, yep. oh, wow, there's holes in your backpack. Yep. Yes. Already. And it's two weeks yep. into school. All right. Backpack. Okay. What's your number four, Catherine? Well, guess what, Aubrey? My what? number four is backpack. Yeah! Yes. I love it. I love it. Yeah. I can remember the backpack that I had going into kindergarten. It had crayons on it and it was so, a little bit nicer. It had, oh. it was kind of made out of cloth rather than uh -huh. whatever that plastic or whatever. Is. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Oh, I felt like a million bucks. Wow. In that kindergarten backpack. Yeah. I bet cute Catherine was cute little Catherine with her Aww. little backpack. Uh, so Catherine, <laughs> number four for me is cute erasers. What? We've just, we've just swapped. And I know exactly I, what we're talking about with the smell. Like that. Oh, that, yeah. I mean, it wasn't even that they were scented. It was the, the eraser smell. <laughs> there was something right. about that. Very comforting. <laughs> yes. I'm sure it was just the factory smell for these particular kind of <laughs> chemicals, erasers. But pure chemicals. They somehow how just is everything that was yep. kind of late elementary school joy. <laughs> yep. It's so, so true. Okay. Uh, number three, what do you have for your number three? Okay. For my number three are fun pencils. Nice. Now, and I want to explain what I mean. Of course, okay. we had to buy the number two pencils yes. that are yellow and have a little racer on the end yes. and sharpen a particular way. Mm-hmm. But occasionally, like not for really school supply shopping, but like maybe for your Christmas stocking or for your mm -hmm. birthday, because my birthday was in September, Ooh. I could get a couple of those pencils where uh, the ink comes out and then you put it, you push it down. <gasps> 
on the bottom and then it pushes up a new little thing of ink. Yes. Ooh, those were exciting. Yeah, I forgot about those. Those were nice. Is that a mechanical pencil? No. No, because a mechanical pencil is the one where you push, like you click it and you push the lead further up. Right, right. But these had little modules of lead that you would take out and then push through the bottom. That's very fancy. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. Fancy, fancy designer pencils. pencils. (laughs) I like that. For the eight-year-old girl. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. My number three is actually somewhat connected to pencils. And I'm not exactly sure how to how to describe this, but I always liked buying like the containers for the pencils, like, but not, not the little zipper bags, but the one you'd like set on a desk, like, like a little, a little can, a little pencil holder and you stick your pencils in it and kind of organize them. One year I made one that was like um, a gremlin. I put felt around it and googly eyes and made it look like a gremlin. And uh, I, I was a big fan of those as like decorator items for my desk at school. Okay. Wow. You had a fancy desk. I did have a fancy desk. <laughs> I was, well, people who know the Enneagram, I was a four through and through. So I was always, I needed my environment to be <laughs> pleasing to me. That was important. Uh-huh. Okay. So that's, that's awesome. my number, that's my number three pencil holders slash containers. Okay. All right. Are, are we, we at number, number two? Number two. Okay. Yes. So I don't know if this really counts as a school supply, but for number two, I put new school clothes. Oh, that counts as a Does school it supply. Count? Okay. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. My school didn't have uniforms or anything, but you know, you grow from one year mm-hmm. to the next. And my family did not have very much money. So yeah. the only time that I really got new clothes, if it wasn't like a birthday or Christmas, uh-huh. was back to back school. To school. And Aubrey, oh, this is going to warm your heart. Are you ready for this? I am so we ready for this. used to go to TJ <gasps> Maxx. My favorite store. Yes, ma'am. I remember so clearly my mom, my mom was a big sale shopper, discount shopper. We were mm-hmm. not allowed to buy anything that wasn't Mm-mm. on a sale rack. Mm-mm. But I was every year allowed to buy one non-sale outfit <gasps> going back to school. And yes. that, I mean, still remember one dress that I bought yes. at the Express that was very important to me in my life. <laughs> and, you know, Aubrey, you know, I'm not a slave to fashion. Right. But even so, I just thought these new school outfits yes. were going to change my life. Yes. There was Absolutely. something very like confidence building about yes. new school clothes. It was like very a resurrection. I, mm-hmm. I'm so happy you put that on your list. That's a good one. That's a very good one. Okay. Number two. I also don't know if this is a school supply because it wasn't necessarily required but I still had them at school. And that would okay. be stickers. Like I just yeah. loved all stickers. I mean, remember you used mm-hmm. to buy those sticker sheets and they had all the different designs yes. or like flamingos or lizards yes. or surfboards. And you'd put mm-hmm. them on anything. You put them on your folders or put them in a sticker book. And I just loved stickers. Yes. Like you could make a world out of stickers. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Stickers were so important back then yeah. in a way that they're not now. Yeah. I kind of wish they were. I want to bring stickers back. Yeah. Do you, um, do you have a sticker book? Uh, did I? Yeah. Oh, yes. I had a sticker book okay. where you just literally, it was just like a notebook and you're like putting your stickers in it. Yes. Yep. Yes. Okay. I, I actually, right now I have a collection of stickers in a journal because I'm, I still, I love stickers still, but they're more, really? now they're more beautiful sort of okay. vintage, you know, they're mature okay. stickers. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, okay. Catherine, before we move on to number one, do you have any honorable mentions or anything that's come up as we've chatted? that you want to give a shout out to? Aubrey, I feel like people are just going to think that I'm fangirling you, but my honorable mention was stickers. What? 
Yes. Yes. We were clearly both girls in elementary <laughs> school. <laughs> the exact same time period. Yeah, I didn't really know if it counted because no school said buy your child stickers before right. you start back. Right. But, oh, I just remember sitting at my desk and loving my stickers. Oh, I, yeah. I mean, really, stickers were so awesome. I still have all my childhood stickers. They are in a box somewhere in my basement. Okay, this is um, amazing. I, I had a sticker book. Yes. Um, that was made so that you could actually peel the sticker off and then put it back on again. But it didn't, it didn't work that well. But yeah. I also loved to make these little... and. Again, you know I'm not craftsy at all. I don't understand where childhood Catherine was getting this stuff, but <laughs> I would make these homemade envelopes with this pretty colored paper that I had, and then what? I would stick my stickers <gasps> in it. Oh, I love and this I have part of your those world. still too. What you Can need you to just bring these see out me with yes. my sticker envelopes yes. and my cute little erasers yes. in my new outfit from TJ Maxx. Oh, we would have been such good friends in elementary school. <laughs> We would have so many fun just like hanging out and doing stuff with our Snickers. That would have oh, been man. so great. Okay, well, i i had a I had one honorable mention, uh, which which was um, it reminded me your pencil thing, your fancy pencils okay. reminded me of it. Do you remember? I didn't always get these either, but every once in a while, it was like they were kind of like this. Might have been what you're describing. They were like plastic pencils, and they had designs on them. Like it'd be like all strawberries oh. or all I don't know. Uh, rainbows or yeah. something like that and they might have been mechanical but there was something about the plastic and the design that were just like very very cute out of the yes. ordinary pencil i think so we're talking about the same thing we might be talking about the same thing okay mm-hmm. all right okay Catherine. it is time for our number one school supplies you want to share yours yeah my number one i feel like i need like a whole drum roll here because it's so amazing is right, drum roll crayons <laughs> you just went very like yeah that's very foundational right wow. i mean i can't say that i ever loved a box of crayons the way i loved all these other things yes but there's just something iconic about You're picking right. out that box of crayons and opening yeah. the lid and they're all fresh and new and in order yeah. i feel like whether my own personal feelings aside Mm-hmm. There's nothing more iconic than a new no. box of crayons. That is, that's solid. That's a really solid number one. Yep. Well done, Catherine. Okay. How so about you? I, I'm going to take it a little older. I'm going to go oh. middle school, high school. Oh. And my okay. number one is going to be a trapper keeper. Oh, yeah. I loved a trapper keeper. You could pick your design. You get cool folders for the inside. Everything's so organized. Amazing. My number one is a trapper keeper. All right. Well, those are our top five school supplies. Let us know if we forgot anything or what your favorites are on our social media at Common Good Talk. It is the end of the show on a Friday Ooh. night. Hopefully you have some great weekend plans. The end of the show, Catherine and I love to bring you something that's challenging or inspiring or something to put a smile on your face. And I found these humorous... Uh, Rules of etiquette over at BuzzFeed, Catherine, on uh, yeah. ways that we can be good neighbors. And, you know, BuzzFeed is not necessarily reliable for, like, hard news. <laughs> but uh, this this uh, article is actually pretty funny. It's called, My Neighbors Really Appreciate It When We Told Them, 20 Unspoken <laughs> Rules of Neighborhood Etiquette. So I thought we could share some of those with our listener for the last listeners for the last few minutes we have yeah. here together. These are golden. Yeah, golden. these are golden. I- I'll share the first one. It says okay. this. I can't believe we have to say this. But don't steal your neighbor's packages or mail. <laughs> oh, my goodness. I mean, I feel like that should go without saying, but it happens all the time. So, yeah, don't be that neighbor. Don't steal their mail. 
or packages. Don't even look at their mail or packages, frankly. I mean, that sounds, yeah, don't steal. That's good. Yeah. That's yeah. good. All right. Well, this one is much more practical. Um, okay. If you're going to throw a party, mm-hmm. give your neighbors a heads up and try to keep it down when it gets late. I think I, that's pretty reasonable. It's so reasonable and like so, con- that's just kind. I yeah. think that's really good. That's but really you know good. what? Isn't it so American to, instead of inviting your neighbors to the party, you're just giving them a heads up. Isn't that funny? Like, hey, I'm having a party. Don't come. I just wanted you to know. I just want you to know what's happening. That is so true. That is so American of us. Yep. All right. What Um, else did uh, you like on here? Okay. Here's another one. I hope nobody needs to hear this, but pick up your dang dog poop and put Mm. it in the trash. This Mm. is accurate. Like, I don't have a dog, but I like to Mm. go on walks in our neighborhood. And I would say our neighborhood in general, Catherine, does a great job of picking up dog poop. But every once in a while, every once in a while, you come across it and you just think, just, just. I know it's gross, but just put it in a poo bag and throw the poo bag in the garbage. Yes. Oh, please. Please. That's like please. basic neighboring right there. Yes. I am going to combine two for the next one, okay? Okay. Their number five is it can be good to get to know <laughs> your neighbors a little bit. You think? And then their next one, number six, is but don't take it personally if neighbors don't feel like chatting. Some people just like their space. Mm. So I think that's good. That's true. Both things are true. Yep. Try to get to know your neighbors a little bit, but don't take it personally if they don't want to have you over every day. You know? Yeah. Like, yep. Yeah. I, think that's, I think that's good. Good boundaries there. Get to know your neighbor, but mm-hmm. like, you know, they don't have to be your best friends have necessarily. To be um, okay. I think this is a good one. Uh, um, when you have guests over, make sure they know where to park. And don't take someone else's spot. This Ooh. is actually, we've learned this this summer because our nephew has lived with us. And so we're navigating a new, another car, right? And so yeah. Kevin and I have yeah. our spots. We don't block each other, but now there's a third car. And so we're having to, we've had to learn over the summer to be like, could you please park here and leave a little room so you can back out if you need to sort of do it diagonally. Yeah. And if someone else is coming over like, oh, hey, can you park out on the street? Because so-and-so might need to leave or I might need to leave. So this is a good, this is very neighborly. I like that one. That is pretty neighborly. Um, here's another one. Okay. Find out if your neighbors would like a little bit of warning before you mow the lawn or oh. fire up the grill. Oh, interesting. So that kind of, I had to scratch my head for a second. Mowing the lawn makes sense. Cause I can't yeah. tell you, I'm not a morning person as we've discussed before, but sometimes like that, like 5am, like let's quickly mow my lawn before I go to work thing is like, wait, really? Right now? Totally. Um, but totally. I think the thought with behind this is that if you're mowing the lawn or barbecuing, you're sending things into the air that might be an allergen. Mm. So that's interesting. That's really that would yeah. be really really thoughtful of people. I, I don't know. I don't know that I would expect next level. that as a neighbor necessarily. Yeah, but no, that's, that's nice. definitely next level. I would say this one is connected, and this actually is a pet peeve of mine. Be mindful of how loud your vehicle is, Ooh. because especially like we've got a neighbor who I love who has a motorcycle, but like, I don't know why goes on motorcycle rides at like 5am. And so you hear that motorcycle and it is very loud and it wakes me up and it's quite frustrating. Uh, I want you to enjoy your motorcycle. I just like either like drive it down the road, like carry it down the road, walk it down the road or don't do it at 5am. That's my, yeah, yeah, yeah. That's my request. Sounds fair. Okay. Here's one. 
when it comes to this, I got to say this one hits close to home. No pun intended. When it comes to yard maintenance, try to read the room and don't be the house with the worst yard on the block. Oh, yeah. That's good advice. Mm, mm-hmm. Why does that one hit close to home? Because of all well, your gardening? As, as you know, <laughs> we live in the suburbs, but we kind of act like we live in the country. We are running this <laughs> enormous garden, enormous right. garden, right. Aubrey, out of our yard. And so we put just hours and hours every week into growing these vegetables. Yeah. Um, but that does not necessarily cause one's yard to look neatly manicured like suburban yards like to look. Yeah. So we neglect the flower garden areas and then we have like enormous tomato plants everywhere. So. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's true. That's true. You do. We are probably on our street the worst lawn maintenance people too. Ooh. Like I, I wouldn't say it's, you know, we're, we don't live like we're on a farm, but like we just don't like yard work. So yeah. our neighbors have pretty <laughs> impeccable lawns and that does, it definitely empowers us to like Oh, we should mow. We should pull weeds, but it's definitely mm. not to the degree that they they do it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I do sometimes feel a little bit of guilt about that, and I get out there and like, okay, okay. This is why I like the winter in Chicago because you don't have to worry about yard work, just snow mm. plowing, and that's it. Just that. So one yeah. of the beauties. One of the beauties of Chicago. <laughs> All right. Well, let us know if we missed any unspoken rules of neighboring. We would love to hear from you on our social media. And thanks so much for joining us today. We hope you have an amazing weekend, Catherine, and I will actually be back again on. Monday from 4 to 6 p.m. because Brian is still out of town. So for Catherine McNeil, I'm Aubrey Sampson, and you've been listening to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.